Well, as we join with our friends in the Community Life Center, I want to encourage everybody to turn in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's fairly easy to find. We'll be looking in the 17th chapter. As you look for that, I'll just remind you over these last several weeks, really since Christmas, we have been looking at the unfolding of a promise that has finally come to pass for centuries and centuries. The prophets had told of one who was coming, who would redeem Israel and set God's people free. And then we read the story of the birth of a babe in Bethlehem, and to the amazement of everybody, the unfolding of that promise begins. Jesus doesn't look like what they were expecting. He doesn't behave like what they were wanting, but he nevertheless is the fulfillment of those promises He is the one we've been waiting for. And over these last weeks, we've looked at some examples of how he fulfills that. We've looked at some of his teachings. We've looked at some of his miracles. We've looked at some of his calling of the disciples. And today we bring this series to a close by coming to a very mysterious but very important passage in the 17th chapter of Matthew's gospel in which Jesus' true nature is revealed to some very surprised disciples. So let me encourage you to join with me as we read this story from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, a couple of years ago, in our household, we were going through a series of transitions and we're trying to navigate our way through some fairly routine challenges. But even though they were routine, just as in your life, the pressure from dealing with those things can kind of accumulate and and life gets a little sticky sometimes. And so my wife and I decided it would be a good thing for us to go sit down with a counselor just to get a little bit of insight, to get some perspective, maybe get some advice on how to navigate things and During our very first meeting with that counselor, he took out a piece of paper and he he drew two circles on it. And he said each circle represented one of us. One was me, one was my wife. And he said, I want you to take your individual circles and fill it in with words. 
that describe you as an individual. So things that define your personality or things that you enjoy doing or the places where you spend your time and energy, the things that define your life as an individual. So we did. We took a few moments and did that. And then he took out another piece of paper and he redrew those two circles, only this time he drew them so that they overlapped. And he said, now the space where these two circles touch now represents the place where your lives come together as a married couple. And so what I want you to do now is to work together to fill in that shared space with things that describe how you as a married couple recognize and illustrate your oneness. Now, curious, you was wanting to know what we wrote on that paper, aren't you? I'm not going to tell you. Sorry. I use this example, though, to illustrate what is, I think, a very helpful way of illustrating something. It's called a Venn diagram. The math teachers among us will know what I'm talking about. It's a very simple way of illustrating how two things that are separate and distinct and different from each other nevertheless can come together in a place where they actually share part of life in common. So in this case, it represents the mystery of marriage, how one person and another person who each are unique individuals nevertheless come together in the mystery of that covenant we call marriage to form one flesh. But you could use this same method to illustrate any number of things that are different. One could represent apples and the other oranges. Apples are, apples are red or maybe green, and, and oranges are, well, I think they're orange. That's why they call them that. And, and apples have a thin skin that you can eat, and, and oranges have a leathery rind that you peel and throw away. And they look different, and they taste different, and they smell different, and yet there is a place where they share life in common. They're both a fruit. They both grow on trees. They're both healthy to eat. They both leave a sticky mess everywhere you go. Or one could represent dogs and the other could represent cats. You know, dogs are social and friendly and love human interaction. Cats are finicky and loners and only want you when they want you. Dogs wag their tails when you pet them and cats bite your fingernails off when you pet them. And yet there's a place where they share life in common because both leave hair on your sofa and both worm their way into your hearts to become part of your family. It illustrates the fact that the world is filled with things that on the surface are distinct and different from each other, and on first glance would appear to have nothing in common, and yet when you get down to it, have a place where their lives and their realities overlap. Now, I want to use this this morning to illustrate two other things that by all accounts are very, very different from each other. One represents earth, the other represents heaven. And at first glance, earth and heaven are about as different as you can get. Earth is made up of dust and dirt. Earth is made up of material things. Earth is made up of mortal creatures like you and me where we live out our ordinary everyday lives and then we die. Heaven, by contrast, is eternal and it's immaterial and it's transcendence. And even more importantly, heaven, it would appear, is not dependent upon anything that happens in earth. The two are separate and distinct from each other. 
And that is how they have been thought of throughout most of human history in almost every religion and every philosophical system that has existed. Earth and heaven are so vastly different that they do not connect, they do not touch, they do not intersect. It was certainly the case in the ancient world. Think back to Greek mythology that they made you read when you were in school. What was all that stuff about Zeus and Apollo about? Well, it was about what's going on in heaven. And what's going on in heaven is unrelated to what's going on on earth. Heaven is where the gods are making wars with each other or falling in love with each other. And, and earth is what results just as a secondary fallout. But there's no place where they share life in common. Or if you move forward to the modern world, we have a similar view, but in the opposite direction. If the ancient world was focused primarily on what happened in the heavens, the modern scientific worldview seems to be focused primarily upon what goes on on earth. The reductionism of modern scientism has said essentially that the heavens, if they even exist at all, are not accessible to us and therefore are irrelevant to what goes on in earth. All that matters is what we can touch and taste and see and measure. But there certainly isn't a place where they overlap or have anything in common. But the Bible has a very different view of things. From the beginning, the Jewish people lived with a unique conviction that heaven and earth are related, that they do connect, they do overlap, and they do so in a very real and concrete way. Now, if we had more time this morning, we could explore some of the ways that gets illustrated very early on in the story of God's people. Think, for example, of the story of Moses going up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. And we are told that a cloud descended and enveloped the earth. Earth and heaven were touching. As Moses went up, heaven came down. And there was a moment of intersection and interaction where God actually presented himself on earth. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to roll slightly ahead in the story. Because in time, that place of intersection between heaven and earth comes to be represented in a building called a temple. And even more specifically, in a particular inner chamber of that temple called the Holy of Holies. And even more particular than that, in a specific sacred box called the Ark of the Covenant that existed inside the Holy of Holies. And inside that box were the tablets upon which were inscribed the words of the Ten Commandments and the covenant God had made with His people in Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22, God describes both how that ark is to be constructed and why it matters. Listen to these words from Exodus chapter 25. God says, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. And the cherubim are to face each other looking toward the cover and place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. And there, 
above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments. Now, it's easy to get lost in all of the details and the measurements and how long was a cubit and how big are the cherubim. The point here is to focus on the very last statement of that word. God says, there, above the cover, I will meet with you. Heaven and earth intersect and overlap in that sacred space called the Holy of Holies. These two distinct realities, which by most accounts have nothing to do with each other, now meet and interlock in a concrete way and in a specific place. The God of the universe is now no longer some ancient, distant deity living off in the far reaches of heaven where nobody can get to him. Instead, he has come and is now meeting with his people. God now has a mailing address, if you will, and he resides right in the midst of his people. Now, to be fair and clear, this sacred space inside the Holy of Holies, inside the temple, was a highly regulated space. It was so sacred that the average person could not just wander casually into it. Instead, only the high priest could enter into that inner sanctum, and he could only do it one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But the critical thing to understand is that God is not some abstract concept floating around out there on the faraway breeze. God has now taken up residence. Heaven and earth have now been joined together. Now, roll forward with me in the story even further. Let's jump ahead a thousand or fifteen hundred years till we come to the story that we read in Matthew chapter 17. We are told that one day Jesus took a group of disciples, Peter and James and John, and, and he went up on a mountain somewhere in the region of Galilee, which means the northern area of what is today Israel. We don't know exactly which mountain. Tradition today says it was Mount Tabor, and you can go there today and visit it, but we don't know for sure. Wherever it was, though, as they go up on this mountainside, the most amazing and, frankly, bizarre thing happens. The text says that as Jesus stood there, his face began to shine brighter than the sun. And the clothes he was wearing began to shine as though they were made out of pure light. And then standing there with him in that bright aura appeared Moses and Elijah back from the dead. Moses, the great lawgiver from the past. Elijah, the greatest of Israel's prophets. These characters who spoke of how God had interacted with his people and they stood there having conversation with Jesus. And as they did, we read that a bright cloud descended from the heavens and enveloped that mountaintop. And then there was this booming voice that spoke from heaven saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, it was so weird and so mysterious that it left the disciples awestruck. They were dumbfounded by what had just happened. 
They couldn't explain it. But they knew enough to recognize that what they had just experienced wasn't a freak thunderstorm. They knew enough to recognize that somehow in their limited mortality, they had just experienced nothing less than the very presence of God. That's why the text says that they fell down on their faces, terrified, Because as good and faithful Jews, they knew it was dangerous for ordinary people to come into the presence of a holy God. That's why all those regulations existed surrounding the Holy of Holies. That's why you could not just wander casually into that sacred inner sanctum. Because it would be almost like sitting on the front row to watch a nuclear explosion happen. The energy of it would be enough to simply overwhelm you and dissolve you. No one, it was believed, could look upon the face of God and live to tell about it. And so they dropped to their faces in terror, knowing that they had just encountered the holy presence of God. But Jesus tells these men not to be afraid. Because this strange and mysterious thing they had just experienced was not meant to destroy them. To the contrary, it was meant to reveal something to them. In this moment, a moment that the scriptures call transfiguration, it was revealed to them that whether they had known it prior to this moment or not, they had already been in the presence of God. Ever since they made the decision to drop their fishing nets and begin following this rabbi named Jesus, they had been in the presence of God. Because as unlikely as it seemed, the person and the ministry of Jesus was now the place where heaven and earth were intersecting. These two distinct and separate realities which on the surface of things appear to have nothing in common have now come together in a fulfilled way in the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. What the temple had done all these centuries was merely a foreshadowing of the real truth that was to come and now with Jesus among them it was being fulfilled. Because as the fully divine and fully human Son of God, Jesus was and is the living, breathing embodiment of heaven and earth. Jesus is fully divine without his divinity being diminished in any way whatsoever by coming to earth. And yet Jesus is fully human without his humanity being in any way overridden by his identity as the divine Son of God and the second person of the Trinity. Heaven and earth have now touched. Now that all sounds great if you're an ancient Jew. But what does that have to do with us? Who cares whether heaven and earth have joined together. Is this just a bunch of philosophical wanderings and abstractions, or does it have any real concrete and practical meaning for how you and I live in the real world? Very briefly this morning, I want to suggest three ways that the transfiguration directly impacts us. I am sure you didn't lie awake last night worrying about what became of the ancient temple. 
But I can assure you, you worry about the things that the transfiguration seeks to fulfill. So first, the overlap of heaven and earth that is embodied in Jesus means that our earthly lives and the world in which we live them are not an accident and are not a coincidence. But to the contrary, these earthly lives that we lead are now infused and innervated with the divine presence and the divine power and the divine purpose of God Himself. My life, your life, and the lives we live together as human beings on this planet are not a mere stroke of luck, good or bad. They are an expression of God's will for us. One of the earliest heresies that the church had to confront was a school of thought called Gnosticism. And you may have never heard that word before, but I can assure you, you are familiar with the school of thought that it represents because it's a common strain of thinking. It was true then, it was true now. One of the basic teachings of Gnosticism is that material existence that physical existence, the physical universe is somehow inherently evil. And that material life has to somehow be shed and therefore the goal of the spiritual life is to break free of materiality which is limited and dirty and corrupt so that we can become disembodied spirits. But the Bible gives a very different view of things. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 tells us in the beginning, quote, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters of chaos. The very first verse of the Bible. From the beginning, God's purposes and God's presence is moving through creation, bringing about order and beauty and wonder in the midst of a void and a chaos. And at least six different times as we read through the creation account, as God calls various things into existence, the text tells us that God looked upon what He had made and He declared that it was good. And in fact, after He's made human beings and He sees it all interacting together in the way that He designed, He not only said it was good, He said it is very good. The created order is not evil, it is not corrupt except by our sinfulness. It is an expression instead of God's plan and God's desire for us. This world, our lives, your life is an expression of God's purpose. Back in 2002, mega church pastor Rick Warren wrote a book that many of you have heard about. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've not read the book, so I can't recommend it and I can't criticize it this morning. Some people have loved it, some people haven't. But what I can tell you, this is in, this interesting factoid, that book, The Purpose Driven Life, went on to become one of the best-selling nonfiction books in all of human history. Now, whatever you think of the book, the question is this, why is it that a book with that title has such robust popularity? Do you think it's because people are hungry to know that life does have a purpose? 
that we're eager to know that we're not just wandering around as a bunch of stray atoms that happen to clump together in a certain way. The world and the life we live in it is not an accident. Your life is not an accident. I can't tell you what your specific purpose is in terms of jobs or marriage or any of those things, but I can tell you you were created with a purpose because heaven and earth have been joined together never again to be separated. Your life has purpose. It is not an accident. Second, the joining together of heaven and earth in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ means that the mistakes we make and the heartaches we endure do not have the final word because it turns out there is another power at work among us. Think about it this way. If heaven and earth are two distinct realities and heaven is way up here and we're way down here, then heaven is of no use to us. And we're on our own. And it's up to you and me to make things turn out right. And if you want to know what the chances of that are, just pull out your phone right now and open up your favorite news app. And I'll tell you, it ain't good. If it's up to you and me to make things work out right, then we don't have much hope in this world. But the good news is it is not up to you and me. Because there is another power at work among us. Right here in the midst of our ordinary, everyday, material human lives, God is working and weaving His purposes. He's taking the broken strands of our broken lives and He's tying them together to do something that you and I cannot even begin to imagine. One of the best analogies I've heard from this is found in the GPS technology that so many of us use to find directions in our cars these days. Just this weekend, just yesterday, we were in an unfamiliar town making a college visit, and I didn't know how to get anywhere, so we just plugged in the address into the little phone, and it started calling out directions. Well, surprise, surprise, at one point I made a wrong turn, or I missed a turn, or something happened, and I got off course. Now, what do you think happened? Well, I can tell you what the kids in the back seat said. But the little voice in my computer didn't say, oh, well, never mind, I guess you're just doomed to be lost. No, it said, rerouting. And within 30 seconds, there was a new route. I went one block, made another turn, and I still got where we needed to go. And I stuck my tongue out at my kids at the moment. <laughs> That's how God works. We're going to get off course. We're going to make wrong turns. We're going to miss cues. We are going to make mistakes. And if we are on our own, then God help us. But we're not. Because God simply takes whatever it is we have done and He weaves it together and He reroutes and He recalculates. And by His grace and by His providence, He still brings us to the destination which is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Heaven and earth have been joined together, which means that we are not on our own. And that leads to the final implication. The joining together of heaven and earth in the person of Jesus Christ means there is a reason to keep on keeping on 
keep pressing ahead in faith and hope. Even when our instincts tell us to quit. Even when our emotions tell us to let go. Even when despair seems to have the final word. The transfiguration is there to tell us. We are not alone. If we pay close attention to the story of the transfiguration, we can notice an important change that happens in the disciples as a result of this encounter. It's subtle, but I think it's real. Note, for example, that if we were to back up just a few verses, just prior to the story of the transfiguration, we read about the first time that Jesus announces to his disciples that he's going to be killed. And do you remember what Peter says when Jesus makes that announcement? Peter says, in effect, over my dead body, Lord, no way is this going to happen. Because for Peter and the others like him, the idea of a crucified Messiah was utter nonsense. They, they didn't have any frame of reference by which to interpret such a nonsense idea. A Messiah doesn't come to be defeated. A Messiah comes to have victory. And, of course, you remember what Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you have your ideas, your, your head locked into the things of man. Well, the next story is the one we just read, the story of the transfiguration, and you will notice that after that, there are no more protests about what Jesus says is going to happen. Now, does that mean that the disciples now finally understand everything with perfect clarity and, and perfect faithfulness? I doubt it. They still get things wrong. But now, they were able to follow Jesus more patiently as he moved and marched steadily toward the cross. They were able to carry forward with him in this ministry, even though they now had a sense of the pain and the struggle that it was going to cause them. And I believe it has something to do with what happened on that mountain of transfiguration, because there for just a moment, God pulls back the veil and gives them a glimpse of what is really going on. And they could see how in the person of Jesus Christ, it all comes together. And how heaven and earth have now been joined together in such a way that they can be confident that God is with them. And so they march forward in spite of the suffering that is to come. That's important because sooner or later all of us will have a reason to quit. The disappointments, the failures, the betrayals. The tragedies, the suffering, the heartaches, sometimes just the sheer exhaustion of it all. There will be moments when it will be enough to make us wonder if it is all worth it and whether or not it is all leading to anything good. The disciples undoubtedly asked themselves such questions as they marched forward with Jesus, and yet they persevered through the experience of suffering to the glory of the resurrection. And I can't help but wonder if it had something to do with what they saw that day on that mountain. Because they, now they knew, now they understood, now they could see. They were not alone. Going back to where we started, when there's a wedding, when a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage, 
somewhere in the spoken words, the presiding minister will say something to the effect of what God has joined together, let no one separate. That is not just true of husbands and wives. It is true of God and His people. It is true of heaven and earth. In the person of Jesus Christ, they have come together We are not alone. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your presence with us. And we confess all the ways that we are blind to it. And all the ways we are distracted from it. And all the ways we are ignorant of it. Open our eyes this morning that even here amongst these ordinary people, we might see you in one another's faces and know that we are not alone. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's a sense in the story we read in which Peter, in particular, and perhaps the other disciples whom he represents, want to just park it and stay on that mountain. Lord, let me build some shelters. It's good to be here. Let's just stay put. What they've just experienced is so transcendent and so wonderful. It would be nice just to live out their days there. But Jesus says, no. No, we have to go down from this mountain, back down into the valley. We have to go to where the ministry needs to be done, and the same is true for us. We come now to leave this place where God intersects our lives and to go out into the world, knowing that it will be filled with challenges and heartaches, but we do not go alone. We go with the ever-present God who lives in us and through us. Now this morning, if you've never taken advantage of the offer that God gives, the offer of himself, the offer to come and dwell within you as an individual, even as he dwells within us as his people, then as we close out this service, we want to offer you that opportunity. If you've never acknowledged Jesus as Lord, then as we stand and sing in a moment, we would invite you to come forward and we'll pray with you as you begin that journey. If you, if you need to connect with the church and declare a church home for yourself where you can be with others who are living out that presence, we want to offer that to you this moment. If there's anything else you need to share with a brother in Christ, I will be here. But God is present to us in this moment regardless of where we are, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. Let's pray we will be open to that. Let's stand and worship him together.